Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. We uh, just came out of what felt like 10 weeks of January. So now we are into February, Super Bowl Sunday, no less. I don't want to brag. This is my second Super Bowl appearance. I was here last year. A few more, I'm catching up to Brady. That's all I'm saying. So... With no opinion given on how I feel about Brady or the Patriots, we move in to 2 Samuel. Just kidding. (laughs) So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 16 this morning. I think I have a slide with it on it. Um, We've come a pretty pretty far way. Uh, One sec. Do you guys bring me that clicker? Because my... uh, Thingy up here is not working. A, this is the day riddled with tech problems. Oh no, it changed it there, didn't it? Ah, my help in need. This wasn't working. Oh, good. There's triple A's in my office. Now everybody knows. All right. Well. Regardless, it's, it's really not that important. It's, a, it's that slide. So, um, Anyway, we've come a long way to get to 2 Samuel chapter 16. Um, it feels like just yesterday we were, we were starting this book and Saul was kind of this antagonist, this, this problem in Israel, and we were just waiting for David to, 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 to take the throne as God's anointed king. And now, here we are, 2 Samuel, we have a new antagonist. We have Absalom. And David is the king, but he's on the run. And we arrive at the events of the text today through through many pivotal little, well, not so little, but these pivotal events. It starts with, with David's sin with Bathsheba. And all that goes along with that story, the lies, the the murder, the, the cover up, the rebuke by Nathan. David's repentance. But then a new event arises. Amnon, David's son, has a sinful and a forbidden love. We working? Nice. Okay, sorry. That's a weird spot to to stop and have an aside. Sinful, forbidden love. All right. (laughs) We see Amnon has this sinful, forbidden love for his half-sister Tamar. And that, e- that emotion turns into horrific action as we saw in chapter 13 when he rapes his half-sister. And though we see David get angered at Amnon's actions, we, we see inaction. It's one of those pivotal things. In David's inaction, Absalom decides It's time to take matters into my own hand. And as we know, he's a patient man, waits two years, decides to take Amnon on a a little trip down for some sheep shearing. Uh, He takes his boys with him. And we don't see Amnon ever again. Absalom flees. His servants flee on mules. And Absalom heads to Gesher. Just to give you a... uh, 
some insight onto where Gesher is, if uh, that's here. So it's a, a far way to run uh, to get away from David. And that's where he remains for, for, for three years. And then finally we have Joab, right? He sends this woman to King David to get him to, to come around and let old Absalom come on home. And the plan works. Joab brings Absalom home to Jerusalem. But he doesn't arrive at home to, to open arms and just a loving embrace. No, it, it, David doesn't want him in his presence And there he sits another two years. Finally, Absalom has enough. He sends for Joab so Joab can bring him before David. Joab doesn't answer the call. He tries again. Joab doesn't come. So he does what any reasonable human being would do. (laughs) Sets that field on fire. This is what happens when you don't take my call. The application is don't ignore someone's call or there might be arson in your future. Could happen. Let's hope not. Anyway, that gets Joab's attention. And he and David come face to face. Throws himself at David's feet. David does kiss him, but it's cold. A sign that doesn't go very far for Absalom. So Absalom devises a new plan. He's going to take things over. It's his time. So he starts sowing these little seeds of doubt into the people as they approach Jerusalem. As they're coming to bring their disputes before the king. And slowly but surely it says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He does this for four years. Patient. Then he pulls a fast one on David, asking if he can go down to fulfill this vow he had. In reality, it's just all part of his pinky-in-the-brain type master plan to take things over. So he heads down to here, to Hebron, where he has the people declare him king. David gets wind of what's happening, so he prepares to flee Jerusalem. And he takes his servants with him, but he leaves behind ten of his concubines to to watch after the house. Remember that, because that's going to come into play in this chapter. That'll That'll be loads of fun to get to. So, David flees Jerusalem. He's making his way out of town, right? He has, he has these different encounters as he makes his exit. First was Ittai the Gittite, who ends up pledging his, his loyalty to King David and staying with him despite... David telling him he doesn't need to. Then there's Abiathar, Zodak, the Levites, carrying the Ark of God. They, they bring it. They want it to be with David. And, and David says, no, bring this thing back. Bring the Ark back to Jerusalem where it belongs. It wasn't David's desire to carry the Ark around like, like as, as Pastor Lou put it, a lucky rabbit's foot, as Saul did. David's trust wasn't in the Ark itself, but the God of the Ark And he journeyed further up the Mount of Olives. Then he finds out devastating news. Ahithophel, a trusted ally, grandfather of Bathsheba, was among the conspirators with Absalom. It was the knife to the back of David. 
Ahithophel was one of, was David's, one of David's most trusted counselors, if not his most trusted counselor. And David prays that the Lord would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness for Absalom. So then he journeys on a little further, and we see the start to the answer of that prayer, because we see Hushai, the archite. He came to support David on the journey, but David had another plan. He says, go back. Go back to Jerusalem. You're going to infiltrate Absalom's inner circle, and you're going to defeat the council of Ahithophel. Ahithophel's a big deal. His council was trusted unlike any other. We'll see that again this morning. He's telling him essentially, go in, get Absalom to listen to you over Ahithophel. So Hushai is obedient. He goes into the city. David continues on his route. Now, this little blue line, this is David's escape route. Um, we're only like in here in chapter 15, but chapter 16 brings us all the way over to here to the Jordan River. Just so you have an, an idea of where, where things are happening, how things are happening, how far um, people traveled on foot. Um, I'm lazy. I don't think I could do it that well. And again, I'm not, <laughs> not fleeing for my life, so I guess maybe that changes things. Um, so that's where we pick up. I know that was a long, it's a long recap, but I, all these things kind of work together, and that gives us the whole background of why chapter 16 is the way 16 is, the, the, the feelings of everyone involved. This whole narrative works together. So we'll look at uh, chapter 16 through these, uh, these four parts. We have Zeba's Khan, uh, Shimi's Curse, Husha, oh, Hushai's Covert Operation, and Ahithophel's Council. So point number one, verses one through four. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Zeba... The servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who who faint in the wilderness to drink. Now, Ziba's not a new character. We've seen him before, going back to chapter 9. He, he was a servant of the house of Saul. He, he's who David calls on when, he, when he's asking, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that, that I could show kindness to? Ziba's who he, he talks to. He's the, the contact guy, I guess, for the house of Saul. So Ziba connects David with Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. And in that interaction, David gives all of what was Saul's to Mephibosheth. And and Ziba and his 15 sons and his 20 servants, they are there to serve him. That's the last we hear of Ziba until now, when he shows up bearing some gifts. He's got some donkeys saddled up. He's got 200 loaves of bread. He just needs some milk and eggs, and he's ready for a snowstorm. Um, He's got a lot of raisins. Summer fruits, a skin of wine, a very kind gesture. Who doesn't need a few hundred boxes of sunmaids, right? But David doesn't just take these things at face value. He asks the question, he says, why have you brought these? 
Now, it just seems like a question like, oh, hey, Zebo, why did you bring this stuff? Uh, but it's actually uh, it's a, it's a question that we, we kind of miss in the, the English, but it, it, there's some suspicion behind it. It's more like, what are you doing with these things? Why, why have you brought these? Why do you have these? As if to say, thank you for the BJ's wholesale sized box of raisins and bread, but should you even have brought these things to me? Because he's Mephibosheth's servant. So Ziba explains that he brought these things for David and all the people with him to eat, to, to give to those who are faint the wine. Doesn't seem too out of the ordinary. I mean, Ziba was, was, was overseeing all this stuff. And the servants doing it. He had easy access. He brought what would have been simple to carry in a great quantity. That's why he didn't come with a whole bunch of meat. Wouldn't have made it very far. But did he have the authority to bring such things to give them out? Which is why David follows up with another question. He said, where is your master's son? Another question Rooted in suspicion. Because when David refers to Ziba's master, he's, he's actually referring back to Saul. And when he says son, there's an interchangeability with son and, and grandson. So when he says, where is your master's son? He's saying, where is Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth? Where is Mephibosheth? Translation. There we go. And then Ziba tells him, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Seems odd. Everything that we know of Mephibosheth is that he has humbly thrown himself at the feet of David. When David first meets him, it says he falls on his face and paid homage. And he says, behold, I'm your servant. And then when, when David said he's going to restore all the, what was Saul's to him, Mephibosheth says, of course you will. It's mine. I deserve it, King David. No. He says the exact opposite. Right? He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth has this history of, of constantly humbling himself before David, being thankful for the grace and the love that, that David has shown him. He eats at David's table. Now Ziba says Mephibosheth is demanding the kingdom of his father. Something seems off. This just doesn't seem, it's not quite right. But David, in haste, without seeking more information, makes the decision. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord and king. Just like that, everything that was Mephibosheth's, Ziba's. Now, if I put myself in David's shoes, I could understand how he got to the decision he made. He's in the midst of betrayal by his son, by a trusted counselor, and now he hears someone else is seeking an opportunity. Shocker. It seems like everyone's against him, right? So at, at this point, he's, not, he's, not, he's on the run. He's trying to get out. This just seems like par for the course with the way things have gone. 
But the one seeking to seize the opportunity in this case, we find out in chapter 19, was not Mephibosheth. It was Ziba. He's the opportunist who's trying to make the most of David's misfortune for himself. We'll see the the details of that when when we get to that text. But Ziba is not being honest. He's conning David, taking advantage of the king trying to make his escape. He's putting on his, his Academy Award winning act, playing this, this righteous servant who cares about David, who cares about his kingdom. And David awards him with all that was Mephibosheth's. Ziba gives him praise. He pays homage. We've never seen Ziba do that. We've seen Mephibosheth do that. But Ziba's doing it, almost like the little cherry on top, like, oh, plan accomplished. He's providing David, who had doubts, with a reassurance, I'm on your side. Right? We, we need to be aware of Ziba's creeping up in our lives. We need to use wisdom in our, in our interactions with people. To, to avoid being taken advantage of. But something David couldn't do in his haste, in his distress. But I think probably the bigger warning for us, because of our, our, we're prone to wander, we're prone to sin, is that we need to be careful to not be the Ziba. Ziba saw someone in a vulnerable situation, easy to manipulate, and took advantage. I mean, this was the king he was doing it to. It's so easy to fall in that trap. To say, now, here's my chance. I want this. I want that. And I see someone who I can take advantage of. Buddy up till you get what you want. It's easy to do in our friendships. It's easy to do in our workplace relationships. It's, it's easy to do in, in marriages. If you've ever maybe... Uh, buttered up your, your wife or husband for something you wanted, but not out of love for them or, or care for them, but for something you just want for yourself, that's, that's manipulation. That's a zebra right there. If you've, if you've tried to gain favor... <laughs> no, it was funny. If you tried to gain favor... If you tried to gain favor with someone just... By tearing someone else down. That's a zeba. When we use people as objects, as a means to better ourselves, zeba. Instead of to say, that's a much easier trap probably for us to fall into than we would probably like to think this morning. That's why we can't, we can't rely on ourselves to just get it right. Like my, we, we don't go out from here and go, I'm going to do my best to not be like that. The only way that's possible is by leaning on Christ alone. Amen. The antithesis to Ziba, who didn't come into the world to take advantage of a broken people, of lost mankind. No, Jesus did the exact opposite. He came and became a servant and gave himself as a ransom for us. 
How, how do we guard ourselves from living and acting as Ziba did here? By clinging to Christ and living in the truth of the gospel, by looking to him. That's how we're transformed. Continue in the text here. David's journey continues a little further. He has another encounter. This thing's not working again. All right, Jordan, I need you. Perfecto. Verse 5, when King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. For you are a man of blood. David has encountered a very pleasant individual. A very happy man. Now, he's a disgruntled man from the house of Saul. He sees David fleeing. He knows why. He decides he's going to seize an opportunity. He's going to go speak his mind. Hurls stones and curses. Not like curses like, well, maybe, but not like four-letter words, but like curses. He, he wants the Lord to curse David. He's wishing God's judgment upon David, declaring it. He's calling him a man of blood. To Shimei, David's kingship is rooted in, in this in murder. It's most likely that, that he, being a Benjaminite, uh, he holds David responsible for the death of Saul. Maybe even assuming that David fought in that battle with the Philistines when Saul died. Which David did not. He went the opposite direction. He may have thought David had some complicity in the brutal murder of Ishbosheth. David didn't. In fact, David punishes those responsible with death. Whatever David did or didn't do has, has Shimei very much angered. And he's actually, Shimei's pleased that Absalom is trying to seize this kingdom. I'm so glad that when we disagree in a situation now, we don't hurl stones and curse at people. Just kidding, that's what Facebook and Twitter's for now. <laughs> I wish that was a joke. It's not. A lot of stones thrown. Jimmy's actions are way out of line. David is still the king of Israel. The author wants us to recognize that. He begins this section with saying, When King David came to Bahurim. The usage of the title king is a reminder that David is God's anointed. Uppercase K. This is who Shimei is attacking both verbally and physically. And it's forbidden by the law. Exodus twenty two twenty eight. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. 
He's violating God's law. He's in dangerous territory. And what follows are two very distinct responses to this. First we have Abishai's response. Off with his head, right? Look at verse 9. Next slide, yeah. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? Let me go over and take off his head. He wants to repay Shimei's insults and actions with some of his own. Calls him a dead dog. It's a phrase we heard. When someone refers to themselves in that way, it's, it's, a, it's a way of humbling yourself before someone. It's a way of, uh, of showing your own unworthiness. But when you say it against someone else, it's a pretty significant insult. So he hurls an insult back to him and then wants to take off his head, which would be very effective. I mean, everything would stop right there. But David has a different approach. Look at his response. But the king said, what, what have I to do with you, sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. It's clear. David's a firm believer in the providence of God. That God's hands are in all the details even when he's being cursed, he believes this is for God's purposes. If God has called upon him to curse me, who am I to question God? What a trust. We get a speeding ticket and we go, oh, trial. He's getting rocks thrown at him and being cursed. And he's like, if, if this is what God wants, who am I to question him? David is, David is here. He's seeing this come from God. He's still feeling the weight of the sin he's committed against him. So he's, he's, he's welcoming this cursing as, as one who, who's recognizing his own sinfulness in, in front of God. If, 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 this is, if this is how God wants to use him, let, let, it, let it be. For the Lord has told him to. He's, fe- he's feeling that, that weight. That's what's, what's driving such a reaction. If David didn't feel the weight of his sin, if he just felt like he was righteous, he would not have hesitated to lop his head off. But he's, Shimmy's being sinful, but David recognizes his own sinfulness and just says, let him go, for this could be of God. It's a small thing compared to what's happening in Jerusalem. My own son wants me dead. The kingdom for himself. And then in verse 12, we see David has a, has a, a hope here. Hope that the Lord will look on the wrong done to him and that the Lord will repay him with good for his cursing today. It's an interesting phrase. It's said uh, by, by commentators that the first part of this verse could be read uh, actually a couple different ways. 
It could be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, as it says, which would also be synonymous with affliction, which is what we see here. Or it says the Lord will look on my iniquity. It's a little different. Affliction, referring to current circumstance. Iniquity, referring to his sin. As I said, I think David is walking with a deep reality that his sin has brought him to this place. So I can actually see how, how both ways would make complete sense. And I actually could see them working together. That his iniquity has brought this affliction. And his hope and his trust is that God would bring good out of it. He's relying solely on God to bring him through this circumstance. His affliction, his iniquity, neither can be overcome by his his own merit or his own means. Rather, through God's abundant grace. That's his only hope. Ralph Davis, commentator, puts it this way. He says, David has a deep-seated confidence in a God of unguessable grace who has a tendency to replace cursing with goodness. We have a God who can forgive and redeem the most wicked of sin. That's a, that's a hope we can, can hold on to. Maybe you're here this morning, you're feeling a tremendous guilt and shame over past sin, current sin. There's hope. You don't need to stay there. Jesus Christ has already come to bear the weight of that sin on the cross. And he put that sin to death in his crucifixion and resurrection. In repenting of sin and believing on Him, we can be free from that burden of guilt and experience forgiveness in Christ. Though David walks this escaper, he's feeling the consequence of his sinfulness. There's a hope that that God can use this for good. There's a hope that God will triumph over it. Is that our hope? in the midst of sin, in the midst of affliction. David's hope isn't that the consequences disappear. If that was the case, again, he'd let Abishai take his head off. Consequence gone. No more rocks. No more cursing. He's not trying to escape the consequences of his sin, but he's trusting that God will use these for his good. Do we trust God like that in the midst of of our own trial, our own affliction, our own consequences? Verse 14, we see that, I don't have it on the screen, but that David makes it down to the river Jordan. It's probably about a 20-mile journey from where he started to get to there. A 3,700-foot descent. He's tired. And uh, he finds refreshment there after a long journey. And while David rejuvenates and 
rests and relaxes, we now go back to Jerusalem. Hushai is there carrying out his mission. Verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Robert Bergen describes Hushai of a master of the double entendre. In this section, we, we see Hushai was the exact right man for this job. He is able to remain loyal to David and manage to convince Absalom that he's on his side. All with the same answer. This, this actually, this kind of reminds me of David and, and Ziba's interaction. Ziba comes with all this kindness and David's a little suspicious. Hushai comes with this proclamation of long live the king. Absalom's a little suspicious. Why he's not with David. Hushai continues. He says he's going to be with whom the Lord has chosen and the people and the men of Israel have chosen. That, of course, being David. But, but, but Absalom's riding the narcissist train, and he's like, that's me. I'm who God has chosen, and the people have chosen. We're never told the Lord chose Absalom to be king. David is the Lord's anointed. God promises to preserve David. And though Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel, it was the people who gladly chose David as their king, as the Lord had anointed him to be. I mean, everyone except Shimei, he was pretty heated about it, not, not a fan. But verse 19, we see a loyalty to David. As I served your father, so I will serve you. David wanted Hushai to serve Absalom. Go in. Get in that inner circle. Then serving Absalom, which he's saying he'll do, is actually serving David. He can't persuade Absalom from Ahithophel's counsel if he doesn't serve Absalom and provide him with counsel. So what sounds like Absalom's allegiance and service, what sounds like Hushai's Service and allegiance to Absalom is actually allegiance and service to David. Hurts my head. That's what's happening. He's speaking in these ways as to to not say, I've ditched David, I'm serving you. That wouldn't be true. He's, He's just, he's serving the one who the Lord has anointed, who the Lord has chosen and the people have chosen. And, uh, as I served your father, so I will serve you. He's serving David, but he's infiltrating what Absalom is is doing. One wrong move. 
I'm sure there's no hesitation for Absalom to, to take him out. This is the guy who lights up fields when you don't return his call. So Hushai, is in, he's on a risky mission. But he's doing it out of great love and respect for his friend and his king. He's serving who God has appointed. Not the one who has taken the throne through deception. He's risking his life for the sake of the kingdom. I, I can't help but to be reminded of the, the gospel here. That Jesus came and willingly gave his life for the sake of the kingdom. He didn't, he didn't risk his life. He gave it. There wasn't, there wasn't the option of it not happening. That was his mission. What Hushai did, it was courageous, it was loyal. But what Jesus did is of incalculable worth. Hushai infiltrates a, a, a regime that had stolen the hearts of Israel in order to help subvert his plans. Jesus came into a world whose hearts had been stolen by sin and offers atonement for that sin. That all who believe and call upon his name should be saved. That's good news. Could just end there, but we got one more section. Ahithophel's counsel. Absalom is, is assured of Hushai's loyalty. He, he passed the test. Now he turns his attention to his trusted counselor. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give me, give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. That took a very unexpected turn. Not the kind of counsel you'd expect to see. Like, what's our next plan of action? What's the next strategy? I've got an idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not go find David. Let's take him out once and for all. Let's, hold on a second. We're going to do this. The question at hand, why? Why is this Ahithophel's next line of action? I, I think there's two explanations that would actually make this make complete sense, as bizarre as that is to say. But the first is the, the, the cultural, historic reason. In the, in the ancient Near East, where this is, there is a custom that the, the ruler of a new dynasty would take the concubines, or harem, of the previous ruler. It was regularly practiced, regularly accepted in that culture. Doesn't, doesn't make it right. However, the major difference at play here is that the one seizing the throne is the king's son? It's, it's, it's a whole level more crude than just taking another person's women. It's his father's concubines. It's a, it's a complete violation of God's law. We, I won't read it, but Leviticus 18, 7 to 8, you can check it out. 
Absalom wants power over God's people. He wants to rule them. He wants to rule God's people, but he has no regard for God's law. His motivation is purely rooted in bitterness and anger. The betrayal he felt from David's inaction with Amnon is fueling his decisions in the present. Ahithophel doesn't hesitate to give this counsel, sleep with your father's concubines, and Absalom does not hesitate to follow through on it. That would be the cultural reason, because there's this perceived change of leadership. So he's taking these concubines. The other reason that this, this act could make so much sense is back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Nathan the prophet saying to David, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Absalom's not going to do this thing in private. They pitch a tent on the rooftop. There wasn't already a tent there. They put this up. For the purpose of all of Israel looking and seeing what is, is happening. Now, not like it's not, a, it's not see-through. It's, it's a tent. But they would see the tent. They would know what's happening. All of Israel will know that he has made himself a stench to David. They would see this happening and they would, they would get the implications. Absalom's the guy in charge now, I guess. This heinous act was a, was a fulfillment of, of what God said would happen. God follow follows through on what he says would happen. Good or bad, however you want to look at it, he keeps his word. When David heard those words, I don't think he thought it would be his son. That's how it happened. David, though forgiven for his sin, again, is not freed from the consequences. His adultery, his inaction, and the rape of Tamar, coming to fruition, ironically, in the very same place where David was lured into his sin with Bathsheba to begin with. Ahithophel, more than likely feeling some kind of sense of satisfaction, seeing Absalom take for himself that which was David's, when David took for himself that which was Uriah's, Bathsheba, his granddaughter. Everything's coming full circle. Uh, and this last, this last verse, verse 23, shows us why Ahithophel is a, a prime example of why our ultimate authority must come from the word of God. Because the problem for David and Absalom was that they had trusted Ahithophel with an unwavering confidence. 
Look at verse 23. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if he was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and, and Absalom. So when they got his counsel, for them it was as, as though we just got it from, from one who consulted the word of God. So there was no need to consult that. We have Ahithophel. That's a, a dangerous place to be in. Now don't get me wrong, we need people, right? We need community. It's a, it's a core value. We need people to speak into our lives. People wiser than us to help us discern wisely and rightly. But if, if that counsel is not backed by biblical principles in step with God's word, we can easily be led astray. If we blindly trust the words of someone and fail to consult scripture, we're left in a very dangerous place as we see here. Humans are imperfect, changing, and are motivated by selfishness, can be motivated by selfishness. The Word of God is perfect, unchanging, and motivated by just revealing and displaying the glory of God alone. There's no ulterior motive to what God has spoken. It's to bring us closer to Him. It's to deepen our understanding of Him and to see His goodness, His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His mercy. To draw us into relationship with him through his perfect son, Jesus Christ. David trusted Ahithophel. He was betrayed. Absalom is trusting Ahithophel. He's led into further sin. Reminded of the famous words of Martin Luther that unless I'm convinced by scripture... In plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. There is no person, no one who stands here, that should be on par or above the authority of the word of God. Period. doesn't matter how much good advice they've given you in the past. Our ultimate authority is this. Amen. As, we, as we sang in that song, in the truth thou dost direct me by thy spirit through thy word. The spirit in the word of God. There is only, there's only one person we can truly trust. I think you know where I'm going. The God-man, the word made flesh. The one who doesn't betray, but willingly subjected himself to betrayal in order to bring himself, or in order to bring atonement for sin. The one who in all circumstances submitted himself to the will of the Father, not the will of man or of Satan. Who found encouragement, refreshment in the words of Scripture. The one who was reviled and did not revile in return. David's not perfect. Absalom's not perfect. Ahithophel, not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. Have you put your faith and trust in his finished work? His death on the cross. His glorious resurrection from the grave. Wherever you're at this morning, I pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to 
in your heart to, re- to receive the truth of the gospel. That there is hope, that there is freedom from sin. That the God of the scriptures is trustworthy above all else. And though there are consequences to our sin, just like David, there is freedom from the eternal judgment of it in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you, you can relate to Zeba. You've been looking out for number one, not caring about who gets hurt in the process. There's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Maybe you relate to Shimmy, you're holding on to anger and your bitterness and you're just taking it out on those who may or may not really deserve that. Wishing evil upon them. Repent of that. Let that go. Rest in Christ. Perhaps you're like Absalom. You're trusting in the folly of others and and the lie of the culture over the perfect word of God. You don't have to stay there. Trust Christ this morning. That's why we have this communion table. To, To remind us as a family, corporately, that none of us is perfect. None of us is blameless. This table reminds us and points us to the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ. The bread, his body, that was broken for us. The cup, the blood shed in the new covenant. And we partake of these things together recognizing our sinfulness and God's goodness and his grace and the forgiveness we have in Christ. As we've said many times, this is not a King's Chapel only table. This is for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ. You're invited to come to the table. If you haven't done that, we just ask that you would refrain from coming and taking of these elements. We're glad you're here. It's our prayer that you would come to know him, to trust in him. In a little bit, the, the band's going to play some instrumentally before we sing. Take this time, confess, repent of sin. And then from that, come to the table and celebrate the new hope that we have. So we eat the bread and drink of the cup. We proclaim Jesus' work until the day he returns. For, just for practical logistic reasons. When we take communion this morning, the tables have shifted some over the past few months here. Tables are here at the front of these aisles. We ask that when people do come, you come down the aisle in line with the table and go back to your seat either through the center or the outside aisle. I'm thinking about getting a job at Southwest. I think (laughs) I can do it. I know, mood killer. I don't know how to, I don't know how to tell you how to take communion without killing the mood. Um, So come down the, the aisle that's in line with the table, go back through the center and the outside will avoid traffic jams. Um, with that said, um, the band can, can come up. <clears throat> when you spent the time that you need in quiet confession, contemplating the, the words of Scripture, contemplating the, the gospel and the redemption we have in Christ, and you're ready to come up, come up gladly, rejoicing. We have a living hope. We sing about that. Let's just 
spend some time in prayer together. Father, we, we praise you. We thank you. Again, for not just leaving us to our own devices, but that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, that we have redemption and forgiveness for our sins. Lord, we thank you for the gift of repentance, the gift of of being able to come before you and confess sin to you. The God of all the universe we have access to. Through the perfect, spotless lamb of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us to get whatever sin out of the way that we need to get out of the way, that we would confess that to you, that we would repent of it, that we would turn from it and turn to you and rest in the work that was accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. That you are our good shepherd who cares for us. Who you have in your hand cannot be snatched from it. Help us to rest in that. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. We just ask that your spirit would be at work in us, drawing us closer to you, giving us a deeper trust in who you are and what you have spoken and all that Jesus has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.